Today's sermon is the last message in a series of four, exploring our core commitments here at Crossway. And we're doing this so that you can see the biblical basis for these commitments. A vision statement or core values or core commitments are never intended to replace the role of the scriptures in the life of the church. They are simply ways of articulating these biblical mandates, these things that come from God to us and for us as his people, and how we grasp them here as a local body, and how we articulate them and use them to articulate our identity okay, as Crossway Fellowship. So we've seen uh, that we are compelled to love others, we are compelled to obey the truth, we are compelled to walk together, and today we want to look at proclaiming Christ. Crossway Fellowship is compelled to proclaim Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord, we ask for your blessing now in this time in your word that you would convict, that you would shape us as we just sang, that you would mold us according to your truth. Speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. Amen. Now, just so you understand, we are not using the word proclaim in an abstract way. We're not talking about proclaiming as, a, uh, as a, uh, another way of living life, a lifestyle, to mean, we're not using proclaim to mean that uh, our quality of life proclaims Christ. We are talking about speaking. We're talking about giving verbal testimony, verbal explanation of who Jesus is and what he has done to restore us to God. Now, of course, our lives need to be consistent with the gospel. How we behave has to line up with the claims that we're making or it's hypocritical. Yes, our actions will validate our message. The message doesn't carry if our lives do not demonstrate it. But at the same time, just being kind, just being generous, just showing integrity, living life with honesty, those things in and of themselves can never explain why we are that way, why we live that way. Christ cannot be proclaimed without words. A proclamation doesn't have to be made to crowds. It doesn't have to be in the uh, the forum of public speaking, public pronouncement. But it does mean speaking Jesus' name. It does mean explaining the truth of who he is and what he's done. Mission and witness are incomplete without it. Last week I mentioned Tim Chester and Steve Timmis' book, Total Church, in which they suggest our approach to mission includes three elements. Building relationships, introducing people to community, and the other was sharing the gospel. Last week we were looking at community, walk together. And we were looking at how community, our life together as a body, is a witness. It in itself is mission to the world, that the world desperately needs community. But building relationships and introducing people who don't know Christ into the community without sharing the gospel sets them up, uh, sets them up for a false experience, to be honest. You cannot truly experience the community of Jesus Christ without believing in Jesus Christ and knowing who Jesus Christ is. I would say that we even tend to emphasize the building of relationships and the introducing people to community 
because it is sharing the gospel that comes with the real risk. It's actually articulating Jesus' name, who he claimed to be, what he's done on behalf of the human race that can cost us. So it's a little easier to build relationships, to introduce people to community, and never really say what the gospel is. But proclamation has always been part of the Christian faith and part of the Christian mission from the very beginning, starting with Jesus himself. Repeatedly throughout the New Testament gospels, we see that Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God. He preached the gospel. He proclaimed the good news. And in Luke chapter 24, we find one of these examples as Jesus passes on proclamation to his followers as the heart of the mission. Luke chapter 24, two disciples are on the road to Emmaus. They have been in Jerusalem. They have seen that Jesus was crucified. They have known that he was buried. And they have heard the reports that he is risen. They are awestruck. They're baffled. They don't understand what's going on. There's a sense of excitement, but they don't really understand why or how these things could be true. And of course, Jesus shows up walking with them on the road. And and as they're conversing about these things, all of these things that have taken place in Jerusalem over the last three days, Jesus interjects himself into the conversation and asks them, what are you talking about? And they tell him, they report all of these things. It's then that Jesus takes them to task. Luke chapter 24, verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. The scriptures for them were the Hebrew scriptures, what we know as the Old Testament. That was their Bible. Jesus doesn't suddenly just re, you know, peel back and show his glory and they fall on the ground and on the road to Emmaus. No, Jesus points to the scriptures. He wants them to see and understand how this had to happen, why this had to take place, all of these things. So he opens their minds and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So the suffering has already taken place. The resurrection, the rising from the dead, that has already taken place. But the scriptures also pointed to a proclamation of repentance and forgiveness to all nations. This had not yet taken place. So these first disciples, and these are not even two of the 12, Peter, James, John, on down the list. These are not two of the 12 disciples. These are two other disciples. One of them, Luke names, is Cleopas. So it's Cleopas and another disciple. These aren't even the 12 apostles. But Jesus says, you are to be witnesses of these things. Proclamation of the gospel began with the apostolic witness following Jesus' own proclamation. And this then is what the early church did. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, these are the apostles now, they have, uh, Peter has preached, he has proclaimed in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost has come, the Holy Spirit has descended, 3,000 people have come to faith and been baptized, and the apostles are continuing to preach and to teach. 
And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So here they are, continuing to proclaim. Then the first wave of persecution comes over the next couple of chapters, true persecution. The apostles are dragged in before the Jewish leadership. They are beaten. They're sent back out rejoicing that they could suffer for the name. But eventually the persecution heats up. And the believers, the church in Jerusalem, are scattered. They have to flee Jerusalem for safety. And so in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, we're told that now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. This is the church. These are all these believers who have been sitting under the apostles' teaching, who have been sharing this vibrant community with one another. They are now having to leave Jerusalem. They're scattering. And it's this scattering that leads to them preaching the word. And they are now emulating the apostles. And then we see that as part of this migration, Philip, one of the leaders in the church, ends up in Samaria. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And then we see that the Samaritans are converted. The, the Samaritans come to Christ. They believe in the gospel and they are the first people group outside of the Jews to believe. But this preaching, this proclamation is the result of this persecution as they spread. So the gospel continues to be proclaimed. And then, of course, we have Saul, Saul the persecutor, Saul the, the hunter of Christians on the road to Damascus. And Jesus appears to him, gl blinding glory, blinds him, and he's convicted and converted, and he goes into Damascus and there he comes to Ananias, a prophet, and Ananias communicates the Lord's will, fast for three days, the blinders are lifted, and after this experience, Acts chapter 9 verse 20 tells us, and immediately he, Saul, proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. This begins Paul's ministry of proclamation, Acts chapter 17. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And notice all of these other terms that uh, the book of Acts ties to the word proclaim, explaining, reasoned with them, proving. This is all part of proclamation. The book of Acts even ends with the Apostle Paul in the city of Rome under house arrest. Acts chapter 28, verse 30, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. From the very beginning, proclamation is at the heart of mission. It is part of who we are as the people of God, as the church. So today I want to look at, then, our priorities in proclaiming Christ our priorities. At the heart of our faith is God's mission to bring glory to himself. And at the heart of this, miss, uh, of this mission is a message, a proclamation. Now again, we're, this is a broad study. We're going to be hitting a lot of different scriptures. This is not a how-to. Okay, that's, that's training in some other venue. How to proclaim the gospel, how to share your faith. This is not a how-to. This is looking at 
proclaiming Christ, what is, what is really at the center of it? What are our priorities in it? We're not getting into the details. Again, broad study. A lot of different scriptures up here. Okay. And you've probably picked up on this, but the Bible also uses other words than just proclaiming Christ. And we've seen many of them already in these passages. Preach. Preaching the gospel. Declaring Preaching the name or declaring the name. You'll see a bunch of different combinations, okay? But it's all proclaiming Christ. It's all proclaiming Christ. All right, first then, we proclaim Christ crucified, risen, and returning. What does it mean that Crossway Fellowship is compelled to proclaim Christ? We proclaim Christ crucified, risen, and returning. In other words, we proclaim the same apostolic message that has been handed down to us. It is not a proclamation that we have created. We haven't generated it. We're not selling a new product. We are handing on, passing on the apostolic proclamation that Jesus was crucified, risen, and is returning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here's the creed. Here's the core of the proclamation. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared. And then he goes on to list Jesus' appearances to to Cephas or Peter, then to the 12 apostles, then to 500 different brothers, then to James, and then to all the apostles, and then to me, to Paul. And he called me as one untimely born. See, to be an apostle, you had to see Jesus physically, the resurrected Jesus. Paul did that in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus. Jesus made sure of it. He called him to be an apostle. So he says in verse 11, so we preach and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? And there he he goes on to defend the resurrection and to explain it, expound it. But But this proclamation, this is the proclamation that we have believed. And this is the proclamation that we hold fast. And it is the proclamation that we have inherited as God's people. Earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul had reminded the Corinthians because they had become enamored with rhetoric, with fancy talk, with a polished oratory. They had really been attracted to all of these gimmicks instead of the plain, unadorned power of the gospel. And Paul reminds them in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 how he came to them. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I didn't come with fancy words. I didn't come with gimmicks and catchy illustrations and and gifts and t-shirts blown out of tubes and confetti and candy. I didn't come with all of that stuff. For I decided, why, Paul? Why didn't you come with all the gimmicks? Why didn't you slip the gospel in? the midst of a a lot of entertainment and a lot of production. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's it. And I wasn't there on stage proclaiming great polished oratory. No, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. 
and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Why the cross? Why the cross? Because the cross was the point of offense to both the Jews and Gentiles, which is what Paul has said in chapter 1 immediately before these verses. That the cross is offensive to Greeks who want wisdom, and it's offensive to Jews who want signs. But it is the cross that has made all human pride and all human achievements empty. Proclaiming Christ crucified demonstrates, it proves the power of God because no one can see the cross. No one can embrace the horror of the crucifixion unless God opens their hearts and minds to see it for what it really is, the power of God for salvation Which is why Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, we are not ashamed, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. It is the power of salvation. So at Crossway, the question for us is, do we know Christ as crucified? Do we proclaim him in any other way than crucified, risen, and returning? Because the gospel itself includes the promise of future deliverance at Jesus' return. See how Paul relates Jesus' death, resurrection, and return in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. For since we believed that Jesus died, there's crucified, and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. Believers, Christians, have given their lives to Christ. It is seen from, from an eternal perspective as merely sleep. Because God will bring those with Jesus. For this we declare, here we go. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. So there's an order. There's a priority. There's a program here. And when Jesus returns, his first order of business will be to call up the dead saints out of the grave to himself. Verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Now, there are a lot of different views, theological views, about this passage and where it fits into the program of of events But regardless of where someone thinks this takes place in the order of events, it isn't peripheral. It isn't just some, we don't care about eschatology, we don't care about that, that's not the core of the gospel. It was the core of the gospel to the Apostle Paul. Even if he didn't give us all of the details and an order of events and a timeline It was core to the gospel to understand that Jesus was returning and that he would raise the dead from the grave. Paul declares Jesus' return as part of the gospel. In 2 Thessalonians, when he's reminding the same group of believers, the same church, that Jesus hasn't come yet and it's not time for them to just abandon all their work or to be lazy or to be idle... 
He says, remember what I taught you. So part of his proclamation in the city of Thessalonica was about Jesus' return. It was part of the gospel. It belongs with our proclamation that Jesus was crucified, that he was risen from the dead, and that someday he will return. Titus chapter 2. Again, the Apostle Paul tells us that God's grace trains us to live godly lives in this present age. We are to live, verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, declare these things. Teach them. Proclaim them. Did you know that we do this every week, every Sunday as a church body? We do this every Sunday when we take communion, when we take the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, as he, as he corrects the Corinthian church and the way they are going about the Lord's Supper, taking communion, he makes this point to them, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So even this morning, when we take the bread and the cup, we as a body are saying, we are articulating, we are testifying, proclaiming Jesus' death and that he will return, that we will only do this until he comes because in taking communion, it is a way of remembering the fact that he is sustaining us in his absence, that he keeps us between his departure, his ascension to the Father, and his return. This isn't, this isn't on the edge of Christian understanding proclamation. This is at the heart of it. It is to be part of our proclamation. And we can't neglect any of these. Even if they're offensive, even if they sound absurd, even crazy to the culture in which we live. We proclaim Christ crucified, risen, and returning. Secondly, we proclaim Christ as Lord. We proclaim Christ as Lord. Whatever else we proclaim about Jesus, whatever else we say about him, it is as Lord. If we proclaim Jesus' love and compassion, it is, his, it is as Lord that he loves. It is as Lord that he shows compassion. Forgiveness, he is the Lord who forgives. Grace, he is the Lord of grace. Whatever we say about Jesus Christ, he is Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. You see, you can't exalt self and Jesus at the same time. Proclaiming not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, puts us in our proper place in our ministry to the world, which is as merely servants. We're merely servants. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What's he talking about? He's talking about creation. He's talking about Genesis chapter 1 when God, ex nihilo, out of nothing, created everything. 
and said, let there be light when there was no such thing as light. And what he's saying is that what we need as human beings is the same kind of divine power unleashed to enable us to understand the proclamation of who Jesus is. The same divine power that called light out of nothing is the same divine power that opens the human heart to see Jesus. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The light then is that Jesus Christ is Lord. We proclaim him as Lord. God's glory is present in that proclamation. And listen, if we proclaim Jesus as anything less than Lord, then we proclaim someone else. And we betray him. Jesus Christ is Lord. Look in Acts chapter 10. Verse 34, as Peter ties Jesus' lordship to the gospel, to forgiveness of sins, to judgment. And this takes place in Cornelius' house. Perhaps you'll remember in the book of Acts, chapter 10, Cornelius, who is a Roman centurion, has, uh, has sent for Peter because he was told in a vision and a dream to send for the apostle Peter. And so he sends somebody to the city of Caesarea to, to bring Peter to him. And he is preaching. And he gets there and he realizes these are all Gentiles. Hmm. We know the Samaritans have been converted. They've been saved. But then now these are Gentiles. And these events are all stacked up one on the other. But Peter gets there and he goes, I was told to expect you guys to come. And now you're taking me to Cornelius' house. He gets there, verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. This good news of peace through Jesus Christ begins with this statement, he is Lord of all. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, he was vindicated and validated by the, as a, a triunity, the Trinity. Do you see this? He is Lord of all. God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he commanded us, Jesus, who is Lord of all, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. But that cannot be separated from who he is. He is Lord of all. So we proclaim Jesus Christ, we proclaim Christ as Lord and nothing less. Regardless of what country we live in, what the political system is, who sits as a president or a, a prime minister or a king, Jesus is Lord of all and we proclaim him as that. This is one of the things that got the, the early Christians in trouble. If you think that we have leaders that are domineering and tyrannical, you should have lived under a Caesar who had nobody to check them. This is why early Christians got in trouble. They proclaimed Jesus as Lord. And you know what? They respected Caesar. They paid their taxes. But when it came to worship, they would only worship one. 
got them into trouble, just like it might get us into trouble. We proclaim Christ as Lord. You know, it's this recognition that leads to salvation, to conversion. It's what Paul says in Romans chapter 10. Look here. Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 8. The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. In other words, the gospel is close by. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. It's close, it's near, it's accessible. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Got to call on him as Lord. Not as your pet, not as your guru, not as your buddy, but as Lord. So you can see that the proclamation of the word of faith, it's the gospel. The proclamation produces confession. Jesus is Lord. He's the one Lord, Lord of lords, King of kings. And the confession brings salvation. We proclaim Jesus as Lord. We don't proclaim him as a sage. We don't proclaim him as a good and wise teacher, though he was that. We don't proclaim him as a movement leader. We don't proclaim him as our peer, our buddy, our self-help assistant. We proclaim him as Lord. Thirdly, we proclaim Christ only. So we proclaim Christ crucified Risen, returning, we proclaim Christ as Lord. And thirdly, we proclaim Christ only. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 27. Paul's talking about his own ministry here, his own heartbeat. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's Christ's presence, his dwelling presence in our lives. It gives us confidence. It's like acts as a, a down payment, ensuring glory. Verse 28, him we proclaim. And I love that they translated it this way because it is the, the grammar, the order that it, it it doesn't, we proclaim him as the object, but it starts with the object. It is him we proclaim. Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. When he says, we, him we proclaim, we're warning everyone, we're teaching everyone with all wisdom. We may present everyone mature in Christ. When he says mature, he doesn't just mean growing, he means complete. It is our goal in continuing to proclaim Christ, to point to him, to teach him, to explain him, to reveal him. It is our goal that we get everyone through to the point, to the end, where they are complete. Either death or Jesus' return. That's what he's talking about. That's what he means by mature. That is our goal. And for this, I toil, struggling with all this energy that he powerfully works within me. Why? Why is proclaiming Christ so central and so crucial to people who are already Christians or already believers even? Because back in chapter 1, verse 23, we see that the Colossians are in danger. They are in danger of moving away from Jesus from being seduced away from the simplicity of the gospel, of faith in him, and to begin to add other things to the faith by which they will be saved. 
And Paul is saying that we proclaim Christ. We talk about Jesus. We always focus on him. We always come back to him. He is the center point. And that if you leave it, if you abandon it, you may not make it. That's why in chapter 1, verse 23, he says that we must, quote, continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. He says you can't move in and out of it got to stay in Christ. That's why the center of the whole letter of Colossians is found in chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Our salvation depends on persevering. So we proclaim Christ only. You know, the same thing happened to the believers in Galatia. That's why Paul writes the book of Galatians. He's absolutely livid when he writes this letter. The greeting is even stunted. He's got to get to, and he's warning them, and he's challenging them, and he's asking them, why are you so quick to abandon the gospel that I preach to you? And he says, and no, with no reservations, In chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be damned. That's what the word accursed means. Let him be damned. Verse 9, as we have said before, so I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Damn him. It's why we preach Christ only. No other gospel, no other Savior, no other Lord. Chapter 4, verse 12 in the book of Acts, the apostle Peter declares, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's pretty extreme. It's pretty narrow. Can we coexist? Like all the bumper stickers and slogans. Yeah, we can love people. We can love people who don't believe in Jesus. We don't go to war. We don't force people. We can't do that anyway. You can't legislate repentance. You can't legislate it. It's other religions that are built on militant conquest as con- to lead to conversion. You know, we can, we can coexist, but we'll never say anything other than Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So we're not selling self-improvement. We're not pushing an ideology, an economic theory. We're We're not promising wealth and ease. We're not, even, we're not even here to promote family values. It's not why the church exists. We love families. Families are instituted by God. Marriage, kids, raising them, training them. Church doesn't exist for the family. We proclaim Christ only. Lastly, we proclaim Christ boldly. We proclaim Christ boldly boldly. This means with courage. And we need courage more now than ever. We proclaim Christ with a conviction of faith. If you believe him, if you know Jesus' glory, it will produce boldness. We see this from early on in the the, uh, ministry of the church Again, we look at the book of Acts, chapter 4, 
verses 29 and 31. This, again, this is the same scene we were talking about earlier where Peter and John have been called in before the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin. And now, Lord, look upon your threats. So, I'm sorry, they've been beaten, released. They go back to the church and they, they say, hey, we've been released. But they know persecution's coming. And so the church gathers and prays. Okay, This is following that scene. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Now, this is the church praying this. The gathering of believers. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You've got to be walking in Christ. You've got to be pursuing the things of the Spirit to proclaim Christ with boldness. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. You'd think that the the Apostle Paul didn't need any extra dose of boldness to proclaim the gospel. And Ephesians chapter 6 is the, the passage we all know and love about the, the Christian armor, the spiritual armor, the fight, the faith that we are to stand, take our stand against the enemy. And as he finishes with that, Paul asks for prayer. Now, Paul, who has just talked about the armor of God, taking up the breastplate of righteousness and the shield of faith and the belt of truth and the, uh, the shoes of the gospel and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, he's, he's talking about all these things. Take your stand. What would you expect Paul to ask for? Verse 18, Ephesians 6, to that end, keep alert, because he says pray, keep on praying always in the spirit. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. What? Pray what for you, Paul? That words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Even Paul, when he asked for prayer, there were a lot of things that Paul could ask for prayer for. But at the top of the list, the priority here was for boldness, that I would be faithful. He says that I would continue. This is why I'm an ambassador. This is what Jesus has called me to. This is why I'm in prisons, why I'm in chains. That I may continue to declare it boldly as I ought to speak. He asked for the same thing in Colossians chapter 4, verse 3. At the same time, and Paul is probably, uh, as far as we know, he's writing from the same situation, same imprisonment to the city of Colossae. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So here he's asking for the door to be opened. Even Paul couldn't open his own doors. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. You look back in the book of Acts, this is Paul being hounded from city to city under persecution, his life always under threat. That's the much conflict he's talking about. Be run out of town everywhere he goes. And he's reminding the Thessalonians, remember when we came, we had already suffered. We've been shamefully treated at Philippi, and yet we had boldness. We preached with boldness. We declared to you the gospel of God, even in the midst of conflict. 
conflict, difficulty, hardship, persecution, the time to peel back, go, go silent, go deep. For the Apostle Paul, the need is for boldness. He concludes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12, since we have such a hope, a hope of glory, since we have the gospel in these, these jars of clay, since even though we're facing all this persecution, all of this, all this hardship, all of this loss, we are very bold. We are very bold. And as I said, we proclaim Christ boldly. May God make us bold. There has to be a boldness. And whatever that takes in terms of our own prayers and our own determination, our being deliberate about how we share the gospel, proclaim Christ, there is a need for boldness now as there ever was. Well, just a word then of closing, not only for this morning that we as Crossway Fellowship are compelled to proclaim Christ, but even as the series, a hope that it has, and I trust that it has, and God's goodness and His sovereignty given us a vision for Crossway Fellowship, how we are to live as a church what is really at the core of our commitment to coming together as God's people here, and how we intend to live out our, our, uh, our lives as, as God's people, a community of faith called by the gospel of Jesus Christ to glorify and serve the living God. Amen. All right. Lord, as we come now to the close of not only this this proclamation, Lord, but, but looking at what you've called us to as a church body. We know that you've called many churches, many believers, and we, we rejoice in the opportunity to even partner with fellow churches, fellow Christians who proclaim the gospel, who love you, who are committed to you. And at the same time, rejoice in that you have called us together as a body to do mighty works through the power of your spirit and the proclamation of the gospel for your glory. Lord, we pray that you would give us strength to do that and that on every tongue and every mouth of every member of Crossway Fellowship would be the proclamation of Christ that we love you, that you have loved us. Lord, that we love others because you have loved us, that we obey the truth and we walk together in all of these things. Lord, may your blessing be upon us. Make our our lives, even in the midst of of, uh, difficulty and loss and suffering, Lord, make them rich, blessed with your presence and your grace, your sustaining grace. We give you the praise this morning and the glory as the one who has transformed us, the one who has called us to yourself and saved us, and who now delights in our worship. In your great name, we proclaim all of these things. Amen.